The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Indeed, with hearts lifted high, we come to sing and to pray, to listen and to worship one God in three persons on this Trinity Sunday. Our Dean, the Reverend Dr. Robert Allen Hill, sends his regards as he is traveling this weekend. We offer a special word of congratulations to Dean Hill and his wife, Jan, on the birth of their third grandchild, Sarah Emily Hill, on May 26th, to their son, Ben, and his wife, Anne. Congratulations to all in the family. On this glorious day in the city of Boston, right in the middle of Memorial Day weekend, it is a great joy to welcome you who have come to join us in the nave of Marsh Chapel, along with you who are listening while running, driving, shopping, traveling, or sitting in your kitchen or living room, tuning in over the airwaves at WBUR 90.9 FM or on internet signals at WBUR.org. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Let us stand as we are able in the praise of God.
Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, you have given unto us your servants grace by the confession of a true faith to acknowledge the glory of the eternal Trinity and in the power of your divine majesty to worship the unity. Keep us steadfast in this faith and worship and bring us at last to see you in your one and eternal glory. O Father, who with the Son and the Holy Spirit live and reign, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. Dear friends, even as we gather to acknowledge and wonder in the glory of the triune God, we recognize that our own lives in the world are mere shadows in the face of the divine life. We recognize that our lives are not whole, but are marked by deep chasms and fissures, leaving us longing for wholeness. We are broken people, and we live disjunct lives in the midst of a fractured world. And so we offer our brokenness and give ourselves in contrition and repentance to the one who can make us whole. Let us pray in silence as we listen to the Kyrie. The good news from God for us today is that there is more love in God than sin in us. God knows our brokenness in the person of Jesus Christ and offers the soothing balm of love in the outworking of the Holy Spirit. Thus we know, we experience, and we are grateful that when we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, forgives our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Thanks be to God. Amen. Today's lesson from the Hebrew Bible is Proverbs chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, and 22 through 31. Does not wisdom call, and does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights, beside the way, at the crossroads, she takes her stand. Beside the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portal, she cries out, to you, O people, I call, and my cry is to all that live. The Lord created me at the beginning of his work. 
the first of his acts of long ago. Ages ago I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. When he had not yet made the earth and fields, or the world's first bits of soil. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command. When he marked out the foundations of the earth, I was beside him like a master worker, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in, in, in his inhabited world, and delighting in the human race. The word of the Lord.
A lesson from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me in the Psalter this morning from Psalm 8. along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. the reading of the gospel, and the congregational hymn.
Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. John, chapter 16, verses 12 through 15. Glory to you, O Lord. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own, but will speak whatever he hears, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. For this reason I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. just fantastic. The Dean decides to take Memorial Day weekend off and leaves me stuck attempting to explain the doctrine of the Trinity. Oh sure, no problem. It's only the most complicated and contested doctrine in the history of Christian thought. Piece of cake. Nothing we can't get sorted out in the next 20 minutes. 
May we pray. <laughs> holy God, holy and mighty, holy and eternal, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Oh dear, what exactly are we supposed to do here? Or more precisely, what shall we say? After all, to declare with the ancient creeds of the Christian Church that divine life is one God in three persons is precisely that, a declaration, a form of speech. To speak of God is always difficult, if not outright terrifying. What if we get it wrong? If we say something out of line, will God smite us where we stand? More importantly, what if someone believes us? If we are wrong, might we have sent them down a dangerous path? That there is so much at stake in our speech about God is hardly made easier by the fact that the object of speech, God, often seems so inaccessible. It is not like describing a stone that we pick up at the beach, washed ashore by the crashing waves. We can describe the stone to a friend, and the friend can look and see whether or not our description meets up with their experience of the stone. But God does not fit in our hands. St. Anselm said that God is that which nothing greater can be thought. One of the implications is that God is so great that the power of human speech to be meaningful in describing God is compromised. So why bother to say anything at all? Why not just remain silent in the face of God who can, we can barely comprehend? Is it not sheer hubris to attempt to speak of God at all? As a matter of fact, yes. It is sheer hubris to speak of God. Not that pride has ever been a particular deterrent to people going ahead and doing whatever it is they are determined to be about anyway. But there is more to it than pride. It seems that there is a human compulsion to speak. The very first lines of the Tao Te Ching say that a way that can be walked is not the way. A name that can be named is not the name. But it then immediately goes on to say that Tao is both named and nameless. As nameless, it is the origin of all things. As named, it is the mother of all things. Similarly, with regard to the Trinity, St. Augustine notes, Yet, when the question is asked, what three... Human language labors all together under great poverty of speech. The answer, however, is given three persons, not that it might be completely spoken, but that it might not be left wholly unspoken. To fail to speak, it seems, is a great, as great a sin as the pride of speaking.
This should not be entirely surprising to us. We gathered here in the nave of Marsh Chapel and listening over radio waves and internet signals are a community. And communities are formed out of shared experiences that are then shared again and again in common patterns of speech, in the telling and retelling of stories. Without speech, we would not be. This is the truth of the beginning of the Gospel according to John. In the beginning was the Word. All right, so we can't speak well, and yet we must speak. But what exactly are we doing when we speak? To speak is not simply to state a fact. Yes, there are what philosophers of language and linguists call locutionary aspects of speech. When we speak, we make sounds that are strung together in patterns that com comprise words, which are in turn strung together in sentences with grammar and syntax, and thus have meaning. However, this is not all that is happening when humans speak. In addition to locutionary aspects, human speech also has illocutionary aspects in which meaningful words and sentences are spoken in a context so as to bring about some outcome. Human beings speak with intent. Sometimes that intent is merely to describe. It's really hot outside. More often, however, the intent is more than merely descriptive. After service, if you find yourself standing on the plaza chatting with a fellow congregant, and that person says, it's really hot outside. It is more than likely that they are suggesting that the two of you should continue your conversation in some nearby shade. You can tell this because if your response is simply to agree, yes, it is really hot outside. Your conversation partner will likely roll their eyes and make the request more explicit. Why don't we go sit in the shade and chat? Under the illocutionary aspect, we do not merely make intelligible sounds. We ask, request, promise, greet, warn, advise, challenge, encourage, deny, and otherwise initiate actions. In speaking, we expect a response. What kind of action are we undertaking when saying that God is Trinity? And to whom are we speaking? There are two primary contexts in which we speak of God. The first is in the context of worship. It is traditional in the history of Christian worship that following the sermon and leading into the celebration of Holy Communion, the congregation would recite together a creed often the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed. The creed usually begins, I believe. This identifies the creed as what philosopher John Searle identifies as a declarative speech act, one that commits the speaker to the truth of what is said. Entering into a common action of committing to a common truth is a powerful way of drawing people together under what all affirm as the same experience of the same God. 
This is one way of overcoming the difficulty of the inaccessibility of God to easy perception and thus description. The other context in which God is spoken of as Trinity is in the context of theological explication. In this context, the theologian is enacting what Searle calls a descriptive speech act that seeks to cause the hearer or reader to do something. Usually in this case, to believe in God as Trinity as the theologian has laid out the case. Trinitarian theologians seek to make the case that believing in God as Trinity allows for a coherent, consistent, adequate, and applicable understanding of God, the world, and our place in the world. Because the account provides coherence, consistency, adequacy, and applicability, categories I am borrowing from Alfred North Whitehead, then the hearer or reader is justified in assenting to the theologian's claims. These, then, are the two contexts in which we speak of God, worship and theological explication. In the first, our speech is declarative and is addressed to God and to each other, binding us together in a common community. In the second, the speech of the theologian is directive and is addressed to us, calling us to believe in God as Trinity because such belief is justified. At least, these are the ways that talk of God is classically understood. I would like to suggest that limiting ourselves to these two understandings of God talk is missing an important active dimension in what we are doing when we speak of God. Speaking of God is not merely declarative, committing ourselves to the truth of what we say, nor merely directive, asking others to believe as we do. To speak of God is to enact a type of speech act that Searle distinguished as declaration. A declaration does not merely commit the speaker to the truth of what is said, but changes reality to accord with what is said. In a criminal case, when the judge hands down the sentence, the reality of the defendant is no longer defendant, but either the one who committed the crime, guilty, or the one who did not commit the crime, innocent. At a wedding, such as the one at which I will officiate this afternoon, the words, I now pronounce you, are what make the marriage legal, and so are a significant part of what makes the marriage real. While I identified the declarative and directive classes of speech acts as the classical interpretations of the nature of God talk, they are so only in terms of a modern Western conception. The idea of speaking of God as a declaration that changes reality is actually quite old when we turn to South Asian religious traditions and also to some very early Christian sacramental theology, some of which survives to this day. In both cases, the understanding that speech has the power to make reality as it is arises in the context of ritual. In South Asia, it was believed that enacting rituals and particularly speaking the right words in rituals, maintain the very existence of the world. 
This belief was crucial to the religious heritage of the region, and speech remained central to Hindu theologies. For Christians, the idea of anamnesis is that in reciting salvation history in the Eucharistic prayers, time collapses together to make the ritual expression of the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus one with its first occurrence in first-century Palestine and with every other anamnetic retelling, past, present, and future. Thus, the Eucharistic prayer is not simply a retelling of what happened, but the actual happening of salvation history, the enactment of the reality of salvation history. The declaration of the story makes it so. Of course, it is one thing to say that declaration makes socially constructed realities so, but it would seem to be nonsensical to believe that simply saying that the sky is chartreuse could make it so. Indeed, there is a significant difference between social reality and brute reality. And we run into trouble if we say that the declaration of God as Trinity makes God Trinity, because most of us would like to believe that God is a part of brute reality, something given to be experienced, not a projection arising out of common affirmation. But this is indeed what South Asian and early Christian theologies claimed, that the very being of the brute world is dependent upon ritual. Today, we may wish to dissent from this strong claim about the capacity of declaration, but perhaps we need not protest too much. Recent work on ritual by Boston University professors Adam Seligman and Robert Weller make the case that ritual, broadly understood, creates subjunctive, as-if spaces that allow us to cope with the broken, disjunct, fractured experience of life. Ritual gives us the ability to draw together the strewn-about pieces of our lives and our experience of the world into something resembling a unified whole. The fact of the matter is that our experience is not normally coherent, consistent, adequate, or applicable across the many arenas of life in the world. And we ourselves are not coherent, consistent, adequate, or applicable. This is why in religious life we acknowledge the deep chasms and fissures of the human condition. As Stephen Prothero, another BU professor, so carefully points out in his most recent book, God is Not One, different religious traditions make different claims about the contours of these chasms and fissures, and therefore prescribe different ways of unifying them. Nevertheless, it is fundamental to religious life that there is something wrong with the world, that we ourselves are not well suited to overcoming those wrongs, and that it is only by acknowledging and giving ourselves over to the ultimacy of ultimate reality that we can get by. As Paul says, we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. 
And hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts. To speak of God is to create a ritual, subjunctive, as-if space in which all of the chasms and fissures of our broken lives and experience fit together coherently, consistently, adequately, and applicably. But our speech about God must in some way acknowledge the subjunctive character of the space. The Christian doctrine of the Trinity does this, as do other conceptions of ultimate reality across the great traditions of our world. The doctrine of the Trinity insists that God is one, thus creating the subjunctive space of wholeness. But the doctrine of the Trinity can only understand God to be one in terms of three persons, three expressions, thereby acknowledging that the reality of God can only be coherent, consistent, adequate, and applicable to us in our brokenness and our disjunct lives in a fractured world, insofar as God is not one. This is to say that God participates in our desire for unity, and God participates in the reality of fractured existence. How God can do this, how God can be both transcendent and imminent, is not something that we can speak as a fact, but is something that God speaks as a declaration. The unity of God, how it is that these three are one, is not something that we can bear. It is a mystery. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own, but will speak whatever he hears. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The declaration of God is that ultimate unity, ultimate coherence, consistency, adequacy, and applicability is not for us now, except in the glimpses of grace we experience when we make our own declaration of God, the Trinity. Amen.
You may be seated. As we turn our hearts to a time of prayer, please feel free, according to your tradition, to stand, kneel, come to the communion rail, or remain seated where you are as we sing together the call to prayer. Lead me, Lord. city and community, and for those who live in them, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For seasonable weather and for an abundance of the fruits of the earth, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For the good earth which God has given us, and for the wisdom and will to conserve it, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For those who travel on land, on water, or in the air, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For the aged and infirm, for the widows and the orphans, and for the sick and the suffering, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For those we hold in memory this weekend, who have given their lives in the service of a greater good, and those who serve even now, Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For the poor and the oppressed, for the unemployed and the destitute, for prisoners and captives, and for all who remember and care for them, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For all who have died in the hope of resurrection, and for all the departed, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. 
And now, as our Savior Christ has taught us, we are bold to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. The peace of the Lord be always with you. We are grateful that you have come to join us this morning here at Marsh Chapel. We hope that you will sign in in the red books found along the center aisle of each pew and pass them along to your neighbors so that we can get to know you better and help you get to know one another better throughout the week. We would point you to the website, bu.edu chapel, for updates about ongoing activities throughout the summer and for the opportunity for online giving. We note that Marsh Chapel has formed a softball team through the BU Intramural uh, softball uh, up at the Fitness and Recreation Center. Uh, there will be a practice on the BU Beach right next door uh, immediately after service. Anyone who'd like to is welcome to join us. I would note that the uh, chapel offices are closed tomorrow for Memorial Day, but we'll open again for our regular summer nine to five hours on Tuesday. Now walk in love as Christ loves us and offering a sacrifice to God.
Mother, Spirit of Spontaneity, we offer these sacrificial gifts from thankful hearts and from rejoicing lips. O God of plurality in unity, may these gifts be used to support your mission and ministry in the world. Amen.
let us remember that life is short and we do not have too much time to gladden the hearts of those who walk the way with us. So be swift to love and make haste to be kind. And the blessing of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit abide and remain with you now and always. Amen.